Chapter 12 of Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Sapp. Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. Chapter 12 Fuentes de Orno. In the early spring, Soult, who was besieging Cadiz, received orders from Napoleon to cooperate with Messina and although ignorant of the latter's plans and even of his position prepared to do so at once he crushed the spanish force on the gibora capturing badajoz owing to the treachery and cowardice of his commander and was moving north when the news reached him that messina was falling back the latter's position had indeed become untenable his army was wasted by sickness and famine threatened it for the supplies obtainable from the country round had been exhausted wellington was as he knew from his agents in the portuguese government receiving reinforcements and would shortly be in a position to assume the offensive the discipline in the french army under messina had been greatly injured by its long inactivity the only news he received as to soult's movements was that he was near badajoz therefore the first week in march he began his retreat by sending off ten thousand sick and all his stores to Thomar. then he began to fall back thick weather favored him and ney assembled a large force near liera as if to advance against the british position two other corps left santaram on the night of the fifth and retired to thomar the rest of the army moved by other routes for four days wellington although discovering that a retreat was in progress was unable to ascertain by which line messina was really retiring as soon as this point was cleared up he ordered beersford to concentrate near abrantes while he himself followed the line the main body of the french army seemed to be taking it was soon found that they were concentrating at pombal with the apparent intention of crossing the mondego at coimbra whereby they would have attained a fresh and formidable position behind the mondego with the rich and untouched country between that river and the douro upon which they could have subsisted for a long time therefore calling back the troops that were already on the march to relieve badajoz which had not yet surrendered, he advanced with all speed upon Pombal, his object being to force the French to take the line of retreat through Miranda for the frontier, and so to prevent him from crossing the Mondego. Ney commanded the rear guard and carried out the operation with the same mixture of vigor, valor, and prudence which he afterwards performed the same duty to the French army on its retreat from Moscow. He fought at Pombal and at Redina, and that so strenuously that had it not been for trant wilson and other partisans who defended all the fords and bridges messina would have been able to have crossed the mondego wellington however turned one by one the positions occupied by ney and messina believing that the forest of coimbra was far stronger than it really was changed his plans and took up a position at Casalnova. here he left ney and marched for miranda but although ney covered the movement with admirable skill disputing every ridge and post of vantage the british pressed forward so hotly that messina was obliged to destroy all his baggage and ammunition ney rashly remained on the east side of the river serra in front of the village falls de orance and being attacked suddenly was driven across the river with a loss of five hundred men many being drowned by missing the fords and others crushed to death in the passage however ney held the line of the river blew at the bridge and his division withdrew in good order 
Messina tarnished the reputation gained by the manner in which he had drawn off his army from its dangerous position by the ruthless spirit with which the operation was conducted, covering his retreat by burning every village through which he passed, and even ordering the town of Liera to be destroyed, although altogether out of the line he was following. After this fight, the British pursuit slackened somewhat, for Wellington received the news of the surrender of Badajoz, and seeing that Portugal was thus open to invasion by Soult on the south, dispatched Cold's division to join that of Beersford, although this left him inferior in force to the army he was pursuing. The advance was retarded by the necessity of making bridges across the Serra, which was now in flood, and the delay enabled Messina to fall back unmolested to Guarda, where he intended to halt and then move to Coria, whence he could have marched to the Tagus, effected a junction with Soult, and be in a position to advance again upon Lisbon, with a larger force than ever. He had, however, throughout been thwarted by the factious disobedience of his lieutenants, Ney, Rignier, Bruet, Montbron, and Junot, and this feeling now broke into open disobedience, and while Ney absolutely defied his authority, the others were so disobedient that fierce and angry personal altercations took place. Messina removed Ney from his command. His own movements were, however, altogether disarranged by two British divisions, marching over the mountains by paths deemed altogether impassable for troops, which compelled him to abandon his intention of marching south and to retire to Sabuga on the Koa. Here he was attacked. Rignier's corps, which covered the position, was beaten with heavy loss. Owing to combinations, which would have cut Messina off from Ciudad Rodrigo, failing, some of the columns going altogether astray in a thick fog, Messina gained that town with his army. He had lost in battle, from disease or taken prisoners, 30,000 men since a day when, confident that he was going to drive Wellington to take refuge on board his ships, he had advanced from that town. Even now he did not feel safe, though rejoined by a large number of convalescents, and drawing rations for his troops from the stores of the citadel, he retired with the army to Salamanca, having reorganized his force, procured fresh horses for his guns, and rested the troops for a few days. Messina advanced to cover Ciudad Rodrigo and to raise the siege of Almeida, which Wellington had begun without loss of time. And with upwards of fifty thousand men, Messina attacked the British at Fuentes de Orno. The fight was long and obstinate, and the French succeeded in driving back the British right but failed in a series of desperate attempts to carry the village of Fuentes. Both sides claimed the battle as a victory, but the British with the greater ground, for Messina fell back across the Alqueda, having failed to relieve Almeida, whose garrison, by a well-planned night march, succeeded in passing through the besieging force, and effected their retreat with but small loss, the town falling into the possession of the British. Terence had come up, after a series of long marches, on the day before the battle. His arrival was very opportune, for the Portuguese troops with Wellington were completely demoralized and exhausted by the failure of their government to supply them with food, pay, or clothes. So deplorable was their state that Wellington had been obliged to disband the militia regiments and great numbers of desertions had taken place from the regular troops. The regiment had been stationed on the British right. Here the fighting had been very severe. The French cavalry force was enormously superior to the British, who had but a thousand troopers in the field. These were driven back by the French, and Ramsay's battery of horse artillery was cut off. 
but Ramsay placed himself at the head of his battery, and at full gallop, dashed through the French infantry and cavalry, and succeeded in regaining his friends. The two battalions of the Minho Regiment, who were posted in a wood, defended themselves with the greatest resolution against an attack by vastly superior numbers, until the French, advancing on each side of the wood, had cut them off from the rest of the division. Then a bugle call summoned the men to assemble at the rear of the wood, and forming squares, the two battalions marched out. Twelve French guns played upon them, and time after time, masses of cavalry swept down on them, but filling up the gaps in their ranks, they pressed on, charged two French regiments at the double that endeavored to block their way, burst a path through them, and succeeded in rejoining the retiring division, which received them with a burst of hearty cheering. Two hundred had fallen in the short time that had elapsed since they left the wood. Terence had been in the center of one of the squares, but just as they were breaking through the French ranks, he had ridden to the rear phase and called upon the men to turn and repulse the body of French cavalry that was charging down upon them. At this moment, a bullet struck his horse in the flank. Maddened with the sudden pain, the animal sprung forward, broke through the ranks of the Portuguese in front of it, and before Terence could recover its command, dashed at full speed among the French cavalry before he could strike a blow in defense. Terence was cut down. As he fell, the cavalry passed over him, but fortunately, the impetus of his charge had carried him nearly through their ranks before he fell, and the horses of the rear rank leapt over his body without touching him. It was the force of the blow that had felled him, for in the hurry of striking, the trooper's sword had partly turned, and it was with the flat rather than the edge that he was struck. Although half stunned with the blow and the heavy fall, he did not altogether lose consciousness. He heard, as he lay, a crashing volley, which would, he felt sure, repulse the horsemen, and fearing that in their retreat they might ride over him, trampling him to death, he struggled to his feet. The French, however, though repulsed, did not retire far, but followed upon the retreating regiment until it joined the British, when a battery opened upon them, and their commander called upon them to fall back. This was done in good order and at a steady trot. On seeing Terence standing in their path, an officer rode up to him. I surrender, Terence said. A trooper was called out in order to conduct him to the rear, where many other prisoners who had been taken during the French advance were gathered. Here an English soldier bound up Terence's wound, from which the blood was streaming freely, a portion of the scalp having been shorn clean off. That was a narrow skip, sir the man said. Yes, I don't know how it was that it did not sever my skull, but I suppose that it was a hasty blow and the sword must have turned. It might have been worse by a good deal. I'm afraid things are going badly with us. Badly enough here, the soldier said, but I think we're holding our own in the center. There's a tremendous roar of fire going on round that village there. I was captured half an hour ago, and it has been growing louder and louder ever since. For another two hours the battle continued, and as it still centered round the village, the spirits of the prisoners rose, for it was evident that, although the right had been driven back, the center was at least holding its position, against all the efforts of the French. In the afternoon the fire slackened, and only a few shots were fired. The next morning at daybreak, the prisoners, three hundred in number, were marched away under a strong escort. Both armies still occupied the same positions that they had held the day before and there seemed every probability of a battle being renewed. However, they had marched several miles, and no sound of heavy firing was heard. 
The prisoners concluded that either Wellington had retired, or that Messina, seeing his inability to drive the British from their position, intended himself to fall back upon Ciudad. The convoy marched twenty miles, and then halted for the night. Two hours after they did so, a great train of wagons containing wounded came up, and halted at the same place. The wounded were lifted out and laid on the ground, where the surgeons attended to the more serious cases. Pardon, monsieur, Terence said in French to one of the doctors who was near him. Are there any of our countrymen among the wounded? No, sir, they are all French, the doctor replied. That is a good sign, Terence said to an English officer who was standing by him when he asked the question. Why so, colonel? Because, if Messina intended to attack again tomorrow, he would have sent the British wounded back, as well as his own men. The French, like ourselves, make no distinction between friends and foes, and that he has not sent them seems to me to show that he intends himself to fall back, and to lead the British wounded to the care of their own surgeons, rather than to embarrass himself with them. Yes, I have no doubt that's the case, the officer said. It seems, then, that we must have won the day after all. That is some comfort, anyhow, and I shall sleep more soundly than I expected. If we have been beaten, there would have been nothing for it but for the army to fall back again to the lines of Torres Vedras, and Wellington would have had to fight very hard to regain them. If Messina does fall back, Almeida will have to surrender. I was inside last time it surrendered, Terence said, but I managed to make my way out with my regiment after the explosion. I wonder whether Messina means to leave us at Ciudad or to send us on to Salamanca. I should think that he would send us on, Terence replied. He would not want to have three hundred men eating up the stores at Ciudad, besides requiring a certain portion of the garrison to look after them. Terence's ideas proved correct, and without stopping at Ciudad, the convoy of prisoners and wounded continued their march until they arrived at Salamanca. Terence could not help smiling as he was marched through the street and thought of the wild panic that he and Dickie Ryan had caused when he was last in that town. The convent, which the Mayo Fusiliers had occupied, was now turned into a prison, and here the prisoners taken at Fuentes de Orno were marched, and joined those who had fallen into the hands of the French during Messina's retreat. Among these were several officers of his acquaintance, and as discipline was not very strict, they were able to make themselves fairly comfortable together. The French, indeed, along the whole of the Portuguese frontier, had their hands full, and the force of Salamanca was so small that but few men could be spared for prison duties, and so long as their captives showed no signs of giving trouble, the guards were satisfied to leave them a good deal to their own devices, watching the gate carefully, but leaving much of the interior work of the prison to be done by the Spanish warders, for, violent as the natives were in their expressions of hatred for the French, they were always ready to serve under them, in any capacity in which money could be earned. There can be no difficulty whatever in making one's escape from here, Terence said to a party of four or five officers who were lodged with him in a room, from whose window a view over the city was obtainable. It is not the getting out of this convent that is difficult, but the making one's way across the country to rejoin. I have no doubt that one could bribe one of those Spaniards to bring in a rope, and even if that could not be attained, we might manage to make one from our blankets. But the question is, what to do when we have got out? Messina lies between us and Ciudad, and from what I hear the French soldiers say, the whole line is guarded down to Badajoz, where Soult's army is lying. Victor is somewhere farther south, and their convoys and cavalry will be traversing the whole country. I speak Portuguese well, and know enough of Spanish to pass as a Spaniard among the Frenchmen, 
but to anyone else who does not speak either language, it would be next to impossible to get along. I quite see that, one of the officers said, and for my part, I would rather stay where I am than run the risk of such an attempt. I don't know a word of Spanish, and I shall be recaptured before I've been out an hour. If I got away from the town, I should be no better off, for I could not obtain a disguise. As to making one's way from here to Almeida, it would be altogether hopeless. The others agreed, and one of them said, But don't let us be any hindrance to you, O'Connor. If you are disposed to try, by all means do so, and if we can help you in any way, we will. I shall certainly try, Terence said, but I shall wait a little to see how things go. It may be by this time Wellington has fallen back again, and in that case, no doubt Messina will advance. We have heard, as we came along, that Marmont, with six divisions, is approaching from the frontier, and even if Wellington could maintain himself in the Alqueda, Soult is likely to crush Beersford, and may advance from Badajoz towards Lisbon, when the British will be obliged to retire at once. To make one's way across the open country between this and Ciudad would be easy enough, while it would be dangerous in the extreme to enter the passes while the French troops are pressing through them on Wellington's rear. My Portuguese would, of course, be a hindrance rather than a benefit to me on this side of the frontier, for the Spaniards hate the Portuguese very much more heartily than they do the French. You know that, when they were supplying our army with grain, the Spanish muleteers would not bring up any for the use of the Portuguese brigades, and it was only by taking it as if for the British divisions, and distributing it afterwards to the Portuguese, that the latter could be kept alive. As a British officer, I should feel quite safe if I fell into the hands of Spanish guerrillas, but as a Portuguese officer, my life would not be worth an hour's purchase. Two days later came the news that a desperate battle had been fought by Beersford at Albuera, near Badajoz. He had been attacked by Soult. After tremendous fighting, in which the French first obtained great advantages, they had been at last beaten off by the British troops, and had ended in a drawn battle, the losses on both sides being extraordinarily heavy. It was not until some times afterwards that Terence learned the particulars of this desperate engagement. Beersford had 30,000 infantry, 2,000 cavalry, and 38 guns, but the British infantry did not exceed 7,000. Soult had 4,000 veteran cavalry, 19,000 infantry, and 40 guns. The battle began badly. Blake with the Spaniards were soon disposed of by the French, and in half an hour the battle was all but lost. A brigade of the British infantry being involved in the confusion caused by the Spanish retreat, and two-thirds of its number being destroyed. The whole brunt of the battle now fell upon the small British force remaining. French columns pushed up the hill held by them, the cannon on both sides swept the ground with grape. The heavy French columns suffered terribly from the fire from the English lines, but they pressed forward, gained the crest of the rise, and confident of victory were still advancing when Cole and Hewton's brigades came up and restored the battle, and the British line, charging through a storm of grape and musketry, fell upon the French columns and drove them down the hill again in confusion. The Portuguese battalions had fought well, as had the German regiment, but it was upon the British that the whole brunt of the fight had fallen. In the four hours that the combat lasted, 7,000 of the Allies and over 8,000 of the French had been killed or wounded. Of the 6,000 British infantry, only 1,800 remained standing when the battle was over, 4,200 being killed or wounded, 
six hundred germans and portuguese were placed hors de combat while of the spaniards who formed the great mass of the army two thousand were killed or wounded by the french artillery and musketry or cut down while in disorder by the french cavalry never was the indomitable valor of british infantry more markedly shown than at the battle of albuera the battle had been brought on in no small degree by their anxiety for action the regiments had been disappointed that while their comrades were sharing in wellington's pursuit of messina they were far away from the scene of conflict and when beersford would have fallen back as it would have been prudent to do they became so insubordinate that he gave way to the desire to meet the french and so fought a battle where defeat would have upset all wellington's plans for the campaign and victory would have brought no advantage with it like inkerman it was a soldier's battle beersford's dispositions were faulty in the extreme and tactically the day was lost before the fighting began the spanish portion of the army did no real fighting and in their confusion involved the loss of nearly the whole of a british brigade and it was only by the unconquerable valor of the remainder of the british force that victory was gained against enormous odds and that against some of the best troops of france terence was in the habit of often going down and chatting with the french guard at the gate their duties were tedious and they were glad of a talk with this young british officer who was the only prisoner in their keeping who spoke their language fluently and from them he obtained what news they had of what was going on a fortnight later he gathered that the british force on the equator had been greatly weakened that there was no intention of laying siege to ciudad and it was believed that wellington's main body had marched south to join beersford this was indeed the only operation left open to the british general Rignier's division of Marmont's army had joined Messina, and it would be impossible to besiege Ciudad while a force, greatly superior to his own, was within easy striking distance. On the other hand, Beersford was in no position to fight another battle, and as long as battleholds remained in the hands of the French, they could at any time advance into Portugal, and its possession was therefore of paramount importance. Marmont had succeeded Messina in command the latter marshal having been recalled to france and the great bulk of the french army was now concentrated round salamanca from which it could either march against the british force at ciudad or unite with Soult and in overwhelming strength either move against cadiz or advance into portugal wellington therefore left spencer to guard the line of the coa and make demonstrations against ciudad while with the main body of his army he marched south the news decided terence to attempt to make his escape in that direction he did not know whether his own regiment would be with spencer or wellington but it was clear that more important events would be likely to take place near badajoz than on the coa the french would be unlikely to choose the latter route for an advance into portugal the country had been stripped bare by the two armies that had marched across it the roads were extremely bad and it would be next to impossible for an army to carry it with sustenance for the march still less for maintaining itself after it had traversed the passes moreover spencer falling back before them would retire to the lines of torres vedras and the evaders would find themselves as messina had done baffled by that tremendous line of fortifications where they might find also wellington and his army who would have shorter roads to follow established before they arrived some of the townspeople were allowed to pass in and out of the convent to sell fruit and other articles to the british prisoners and terence thought it better to open negotiations with one of these rather than one of the warders in french pay 
he was not long in fixing upon one of them as an ally. She was a good-looking peasant girl, who came regularly with grapes and other fruit. From the first, Terence had made his purchases from her, and had stood chatting with her for some time. "'I want to get away from here, Nita,' he said on the day he received the news of Wellington's march to the south. "'I dare say, senor,' she laughed. "'I suppose all the other prisoners want the same.' "'No doubt, but you see, they will not have much chance of getting away, because none of them understand Spanish. I talk it a little, as you see, so if I got out and had a disguise, I might very well make my way across the country.' "'There are many brigands about,' she said, "'and it is not safe for a single man to travel anywhere. What do you want me to do?' I want a rope fifty feet long, not a very thick one, but strong enough to bear my weight. That is the first thing. Then I want a disguise, but that I could get if a friend would be in readiness to give it to me, after I had slid down the rope into the street. How could I give you a rope, senor, with all these people about? You could put it into the bottom of your basket, and cover it over with fruit. You could take your stand near the door at the foot of the stairs leading up to my room. Then I could, in the hearing of the rest, say that it was my fete day, and that I was going to give the others a treat, so that I would buy all your grapes. After we had bargained for them, I can hand you the money and say, Give me your basket, I will run upstairs, empty it, and bring it down to you. As this would save me from making five or six journeys upstairs, there would be nothing suspicious about that. I will think it over, the girl said gravely. I do not see that there would be much danger. I will give you an answer tomorrow. The next day, she said, when Terence went up to her, "'I will do it, senor. I have a lover who is a muleteer. I spoke to him last night, and he will help you. Tomorrow I will give you the rope. In the afternoon you are to hang something out of your window, not far, but so that it can be seen from the street. That red sash of yours will do very well. Do not let it go more than an inch or two beyond the window sill, so that it will not attract any attention. When the clock strikes ten, Garcia and I will be in the street below that window. This is a quiet neighborhood, and no one is likely to be about. Garcia will have a suit of muleteer's clothes for you, and you can change at once. I will carry those you have on to our house and destroy them. Garcia will take you to his lodging. He starts at daybreak with his mules, and you could travel with them. Thank you most heartily, Nita. Here are five gold pieces for the purchase of the robes and clothes. Oh, they will not cost anything like as much as that, the girl said. If they don't, you must buy yourself a little keepsake, Nita, in remembrance of me. But I will send you something better worth having by Garcia when I reach our army, and I am able to get money with which I can pay him for his labor and loss of time. I don't want money, the girl said, drawing herself out proudly. I am helping you because I like you, and because you have come here to drive the French away. I should not think of offering you money, Nita. I know that it is out of pure kindness that you are doing it, but you could not refuse some little trinket to wear on your wedding day. I may never get married, the girl said with a pout. Oh, I know better than that, Nita. A girl with as pretty a face as yours would never remain single, and I should not be surprised if you were to tell me that the day is fixed already. It is not fixed, and it is not likely to be, senor. I have told Garcia that I will never marry as long as the French are here. He may go out with one of the partisan forces. He often talks about doing so, and might get shot any day by these brigands. When I am married, I am not going to stay at home by myself while he is away among the mountains. Ah, well, the war cannot last forever, 
you may have Wellington here before the year is out. Give me your address, so that when we come I may find you out. Carlos San Salvador, number 10. It is one of my uncles I am living with there. My home is in Berda, six miles away. It is a little village, and there are so many French bands ranging over the country that a month ago my father sent me here to stay with my uncle, thinking that I should be safer in the city than in the little village. He brings fruit to me for me to sell twice a week. Very well. If we come here, I shall go to your uncle's and inquire for you, and if you have left him, I will go out to your village and find you. All passed off as arranged, without the slightest hitch. Terence took the girl's basket and ran upstairs with it, emptied the fruit out on the table, thrust the rope under his bed, and ran down again and gave me to the basket. At ten o'clock at night, he slung himself from the window, and after a hearty goodbye to his fellow prisoners, several of whom, now that it was too late, would gladly have shared in his adventure. I should be glad if you were going with me, but at the same time, I own that I do not think we should get through. I question indeed if the muleteer would take anyone who did not understand enough Spanish to pass if he were questioned by French soldiers, and if he would do so, it would greatly increase the risk. At the same time, if one of you would like to take my place, I will relinquish it to you, and will, after you have gone off with the muleteer, go in another direction and take my chance of getting hold of the disguise somehow and making my way out. None of the others would hear of this, and after extinguishing the light, so as to obviate the risk of anyone noticing him getting out of the window, Terence slipped down to the ground just as the clock struck ten. Good evening, senor, a voice said as his feet touched the ground. Here is your disguise. Nita is watching a short distance away, and will give us notice if anyone approaches. You had best change at once. Terence took off his uniform, and with the assistance of the muleteer, donned the garments that had been brought for him. Then he rolled the others into a bundle, and the muleteer gave a low whistle, whereupon Nito came running up. "'Thanks be to the saints that no one has come along,' she said as the rope, which Terence had forgotten, fell at their feet. His companions, having, as agreed, untied the upper end. "'That will come in useful,' Garcia said, coiling it up on his arm. "'Now, senor, do not let us stand talking. Nita will take the uniform and burn it.' "'I will hide it if you like,' the girl said. "'There can be no reason for their searching our house.' "'Thank you, Nita, but it would be better to destroy it at once. It may be a long time before I come this way again. Besides, the things have seen their best days, and I have another suit I can put on when I join my regiment. Thanks very much for your kindness, which I shall always remember.' "'Good-bye, senor.' May the saints protect you. And without giving him time to say more, she took the brundle from Garcia's hand and sped away down the street. Now, senor, follow me, he said, turning to go in the other direction. You had best call me Juan and begin at once, Terence said. If by accident you were to say senor in the hearing of anyone, there would be trouble at once. I shall be careful, never fear, the man said. However, there would only be harm done if there happened to be a Frenchman or one of their Spaniards, who are worse, present. As to my own comrades, it would not matter at all. We muleteers are all heart and soul against the French, and will do anything to injure them. We are all obliged to work for them, for all trade is at an end, and we must live. Many have joined the partisans, but those who have good mules cannot go away and give up their only means of earning a living. For although the French pay for carriage by mules or carts, if they come upon animals that are not being used, they take them without a single scruple. Besides, there are not many partisans in this part of Spain. 
the french have been too long in the valley here and are too strong in the castiles for their operations it is different in navarre aragon and catalonia and in valencia and mercia there the french have never had a strong footing and most of the strong places are still in spanish hands in all the mountainous parts in fact there are guerrillas but here it is too dangerous there are bands all over the country but these are really but robbers and no honest man would join them this is the house he turned in at a small doorway and unlocked the door closing it after them put your hand on my shoulder juan he said i have a light upstairs he led the way in darkness up a stone staircase then unlocked another door and entered a small room where a candle was burning this is my home when i am here he said most of us sleep at the stables where our mules are put up but i like having a place to myself and my mate looks after the mules nothing could have been simpler than the furniture of the room it consisted of a low pallet a small table and a single chair in a corner were a pair of saddlebags and two or three colored blankets a thick coat lined with sheepskin hung against the wall in a corner was a brightly colored picture of a saint with two scones for candles by the side of it the muleteer had crossed himself and bowed to it as he came in and terence doubted not that it was the picture of a saint who was supposed to take a special interest in muleteers from a small cupboard the man brought about a flask of wine and two drinking cups it is good he said as he placed them on a table i go down to zara sometimes and always bring up a half an octave of something special for my friends here after pouring out the two cups he handled the chair politely to terence and sat himself down on the edge of the pallet then taking out a tobacco bag and a roll of paper he made a cigarette and handed it to terence and then rolled one for himself End of chapter 12 Recording by Charles Sapp